This is a crawdad song. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Bing, boo. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Crawdad man done past your gate. Welcome to Crawdads and Taters, Red State Rebels. We are writers, activists, and leftists who come from two of the reddest states in the country, Oklahoma and Idaho. When we say red, we may be referring to the indigenous, socialist, and labor histories of these states, or the right-wing fanaticism that they're known for today. As rebels, we use a leftist lens to analyze current events, political issues, and revolutionary movements that support our collective survival. So so my crawl, that's three, four, dime. Your crawl, that's not as fat as mine. Welcome to episode one. Yay, this is our first episode. Yay, Yay. Crowd as <laughs> Today we wanted to talk a little bit about the Black Panther Party because it's been coming up a lot in the news lately. And we've been noticing that only certain aspects of the Black Panther history tends to be remembered by the U.S. corporate media. So we thought it might be a good time to at least touch on the core of the Black Panther ideology, which holds very valuable lessons, we believe, for today's fledgling leftist movements in the United States. So we did watch the new film that just came out, Judas and the Black Messiah, which rather than centering on Fred Hampton, centers on the informant William O'Neill, who was working for the FBI in counterintelligence operations to take down the Black Panther Party. And what did you think about that? Did you like that focus? Um, I wasn't a big fan of the focus. Um, I thought the movie did a good job of covering Fred Hampton when he was being covered but it would have been better if we had a full film specifically on Fred Hampton. Yeah, I agree. Um, What's interesting about that though, is that I was reading this article in the Los Angeles times by the director Shaka King. And apparently that decision to center the story around the informant rather than around Fred Hampton was a totally strategic decision. The director says, um, A lot of people don't know that the FBI was really the architect of the conspiracy, not to mention that Fred's politics are incredibly radical and anti-capitalist in a studio system whose lifeblood is capitalism. That's why, rather than making a straightforward Hampton biopic, it was decided that the story would be told from O'Neill's perspective. That completely makes sense. Hollywood would never really accept having a specifically anti-capitalist, radical film about Fred Hampton. Yeah, for sure. That is the state of our corporate media, which is why not only can we not have films about Fred Hampton, but we can't really learn what Fred Hampton's real message was about. (laughs) Which is what we'll be talking about a little bit on this episode. Um, There was some recent news also came out that New FBI documents have been released, which implicated the FBI and Hoover in directly in planning the assassination of Fred Hampton. Yeah. And that's, I mean, everybody knew that 
that the FBI was involved in in Fred Hampton's murder. But this, I guess, these most recent documents actually show that um, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI were actually fully planning it. They weren't just knowledgeable of it, but they were directly involved in every aspect of the conspiracy. And that was actually touched on a little bit in the movie. So I'm glad they covered that, even though the documents at that point had not even come out. Yeah. So yeah. Good that they implicated Hoover directly. Mm-hmm. And also like in the last couple of weeks, um, this new letter came out about Malcolm X that was um, about his assassination and the FBI's role, direct role in the NYPD and the FBI in planning his assassination. And Which, that was the letter. What was the name of the guy? The letter who released the letter on his deathbed. I I don't remember the name. Oh, okay, of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I believe he was NYPD. Yeah, he was like former NYPD. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so these new documents have come to light, which um, have revealed that you know the FBI played a huge role in all of these assassinations and in. Um, basically neutering these these black radical movements that were happening in the 1960s. So based on that, we've been thinking, you know, more generally about the Black Panthers and their political message and their anti-capitalist ideology that has been neutered, <laughs> not only from our movements, but from our retellings of history um, and how what the Black Panthers were really about in terms of their anti-capitalist ideology continues to be hidden and obfuscated by U.S. media portrayals of them today. Um, and yet we feel like their anti-capitalist message and class analysis is absolutely critical in this moment. Yeah, we, we also watched the uh, Rainbow Coalition, which was a uh, PBS documentary about Fred Hampton, and they specifically left out his anti-capitalist stance in that. So I believe that's another example of how the media fails to yeah. cover them. They said something about class solidarity, right? But then they kept cutting off his statement right before he would say it's socialism, not capitalism. Yeah. They, they end the quote with the part about you know how we fight with solidarity and then they cut it immediately where the next thing is, you know, we fight capitalism with socialism. That's right. And actually Cory Booker did the exact same thing in a tweet for black history month. Oh really? Recently. And got a lot of shit for it on Twitter. Oh, well that's good that at least Twitter's holding him accountable. <laughs> you can count on the Twitter leftists to <laughs> call people out. <laughs> well, I guess that's about the only people we can count on right now. <laughs> So we really started looking into the Black Panther Party last summer after the George Floyd protests really brought the Black Lives Matter movement to the forefront again. Um, we noticed during this time that it didn't take long for the corporate class to jump on board and support the Black Lives Matter with their own you know, kind of solidarity messages we saw Nancy Pelosi with the Kenti scarves <laughs> in the the candy cloth, candy cloth in the you know, in the house. Um, CEOs, 
yeah, just jumping on. Um, I think you read something recently about this, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we know that the movement for Black Lives had a very radical message and addressed a lot of systemic and economic issues in their platform, um, you know, coming out of the George Floyd protests. But it, it was just, it was interesting to us, yeah, how quickly the corporations were on board. And that made us very suspicious because it's like, well, if the corporations are on board, like, why, why are they on board? <laughs> why, why is this a friendly movement for them? <laughs> so um, based on that, I was, I was reading this article from um, the LA Progressive, and it's written by sociologist William Robinson, who's one of my most favorite sociologists. And um, the article's called It's Capitalism Stupid. And he, <laughs> and he describes this phenomenon um, of, the, of the Black Lives Matter protests and what happened to them. Um, he says, the powers that be are already embracing the language of struggle against, quote, systemic racism. Racial justice is now being espoused by po political and economic elites. CEOs of major global banks and corporations whose policies have perpetuated racial inequality have taken the knee, declared their, quote, solidarity with aggrieved communities, as have Democratic and Republican Party stalwarts, as they attempt to commodify and convert Black Lives Matter into a corporate logo. Lest the anti-racist struggle end up emptied of its transformative potential, it must identify and target capitalism as the system that gave rise to and continuously reproduces racism. Ethnic, racial, gender, and sexual oppression are not tangential, but constitutive of capitalism. There can be no general emancipation without liberation from these forms of oppression. Yet the opposite is equally true. There can be no liberation from these forms of oppression without liberating ourselves from capitalism. And then he goes on to actually quote Fred Hampton in the article, which is why we wanted to bring um, Robinson into this discussion, because he's talking about the Black Panthers. He says, we never negated the fact that there was racism in America, but we said that the byproduct, which what comes off of capitalism that happens to be racism was noted half a century ago by Fred Hampton, the charismatic Chicago leader of the Black Panther Party, shortly before his extrajudicial execution by the FBI and the Chicago police in 1969. Hampton said that capitalism comes first and racism is next, that when they brought slaves over here, it was to make money. So the first idea came that we want to make money, then the slaves came in order to make that money. That means through historical fact that racism had to come before capitalism or come from capitalism. It had to be capitalism first and racism was a byproduct of that. So I think we can just end the podcast with that. William Robinson and Fred Hampton basically said it all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, really like, you know, racial capitalism is the point that Fred Hampton and William Robinson are trying to bring forth there. And that's something that is not really being talked about, you know, even though Movement for Black Lives has very clear demands about that are anti-capitalist, nothing that we're seeing from the mainstream media on Black Lives Matter, on any of the protests, really makes that connection between racism and capitalism. 
Right. Yeah, we have a real problem in this country with um, with separating those two and 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 talking about race in terms of identity politics and um, issues of discrimination without focusing on the structural force behind racism, which is capitalism. Yes, and the Black Panthers, you know, as that quote from Fred Hampton shows, they really had a deep understanding of this. Mm-hmm. And I want to go on with a few more quotes from Fred Hampton. I believe there's actually from the same speech that William Robinson quoted. Um, so Fred Hampton said, first of all, we say primarily that the priority of this struggle is class, that Marx and Lenin and Che Guevara and Mao Zedong and anybody else that has ever said or knew or practiced anything about revolution always said that revolution is a class struggle. It was one class, the oppressed, those other class, the oppressor. And it's got to be a universal fact. Those that don't admit to that are those that don't want to get involved in a revolution because they know that as long as they're dealing with a race thing, they'll never be involved in a revolution. They can talk about numbers, they can hang you up in many, many ways, but as soon as you start talking about class, then you got to start talking about some guns. And that's what the party had to do. When the party started to talk about class struggle, we found that we had to start talking about some guns. If we never negated the fact that there was racism in America, but we said that when you, the byproduct, what comes off of racism, that capitalism comes first and next is racism, that when they brought slaves over here, it was to take money. So first the idea came that we want to make money, then the slaves came in order to make that money. That means that capitalism had to, through historical fact, racism had to come from capitalism. It had to be capitalism first, and racism was a byproduct of that. Right, which is the same quote that Will Robinson used in, in his article. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, this is the thing that we don't learn in our school history textbooks. We don't learn from the U.S. media. We don't learn even from our present-day documentaries about Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers. We don't learn the deep core of their anti-capitalist ideology. Um, just to go into a little, a few more examples, here's a quote from Bobby Seale, who's a co-founder of the Black Panthers, from his book, Seize the Time. He says, racism and ethnic differences allow the power structure to exploit the masses of workers in this country because that's the key by which they maintain their control. To divide the people and conquer them is the objective of the power structure. It's the ruling class, the very small minority, the few avaricious demagogic hogs and rats who control and infest the government. The ruling class and their running dogs, their lackeys, their bootlickers, their toms and their black racists, their cultural nationalists, they're all the running dogs of the ruling class. These are the ones who help maintain and aid the power structure by perpetuating their racist attitudes and using racism as a means to divide the people. But it's really the small minority ruling class that is dominating, exploiting, and oppressing the working people and laboring people. All of us are laboring class people, employed or unemployed, and our unity has got to be based on the practical necessities of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, if that means anything to anybody. It's got to be based on the practical things like the survival of people and the people's right to self-determination to iron out the problems that exist. 
So in essence, it is not at all a race struggle. We're rapidly educating people to this. In our view, it is a class struggle between the massive proletarian working class and the small minority ruling class. Working class people of all colors must unite against the exploitative, oppressive ruling class. So let me emphasize again, we believe our fight is a class struggle and not a race struggle. Those who want to obscure the struggle with ethnic differences are the ones who are aiding and maintaining the exploitation of the masses of the poor. Poor whites, poor blacks, browns, red Indians, poor Chinese and Japanese, and the workers at large. So that was Bobby Seale from his book, Seize the Time. So yeah, that's an amazing quote there. I think it really gets to the heart of the issue that you know the Panthers believed it was a class struggle and not just broken down on racial differences. Mm-hmm. And it's obvious, like if you study them very much at all, or you know, watch many documentaries about their rainbow coalition building, for example, that all of their actual organizing was based on class two because they partnered and collaborated with groups like the Young Patriots. Is that what they were called? The Young yeah. Patriots who went around, um, you know, carrying their Confederate flags at all of their rallies. Yes, <laughs> yes this, this was a hillbilly organization. Mm-hmm. I think one of their co-founders came from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. They lived in Chicago, the same place where Fred Hampton was, mm-hmm. and just poor working class white people, and they didn't know any better than to have the Confederate flag there because that was their heritage. Right. At the beginning, they didn't. At Later on, after they began organizing more and more with the Black Panthers, they kind of started dropping the, the use of the flag a little bit. But but at first, yeah, that was just their, their upbringing and their heritage. But I think it's such a incredible like testament to the Black Panthers that they weren't scared off by that and that they were really focused on the oppression, the class oppression that they had in common and that they were organizing based on that shared oppression. Yes, like almost every Fred Hampton speech, you always hear him saying all power to the people. All power to all the people. Yes, all power to all the people. Yeah. You know, not... Just, you know, it says black power to black people, white power to white people, Mm -hmm. red power to red people, yellow power to yellow people, Mm -hmm. all power to all the people. Mm -hmm. It's about the people. It's, you know, it's about the working class, class struggle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is exactly the message that we feel like is getting lost um, in the evolution of the left in the United States and the... um, it's clear, you know, and several sociologists have talked about this, like Vivek Chibber and Bill Robinson. Um, they both have these uh, critiques of the demise of um, the demise of academia, really, the demise of intellectualism and the demise of radical capitalist critiques within academia. And how, like at this point, because those elements have been stripped out of our um, progressive ideologies and our institutions of higher learning and also stripped out of like NGO culture and nonprofit culture and just all across the board, we've lost this radical critique of capitalism within uh, the racial justice movements. And so now we're having to like go back and relearn the history of the 1930s and 40s and look back and, and the 1960s at the Black Panthers and like relearn what it means to have an anti-capitalist critique because 
obviously socialism has gotten such a bad name since the 1950s. Yeah, so I think we really kind of lost this discourse starting you know, in the 1980s, which is roughly the same time that the Black Panther Party disbanded. Um, and it was kind of goes along with the rise in academia of such subjects as like critical race theory. Yeah, it's something that I'm just starting to learn more about, actually, like what happened, I think, critical race theory had um, in the beginning, I think in the 1980s seemed to have a, a radical framework, a radical legal framework. And it had to do with um, sort of looking at the, the way that uh, people of color were being disenfranchised by the legal structure, but somehow like over the decades, it became more and more, um, associated with identity politics and um, ideas of racism that were yeah, specifically rooted in individual identity and less in the structural forces connected to oppression. It became more tied to discrimination and less to oppression, uh, especially class-based oppression. And so I think the, like the, the anti-capitalist critique basically disappeared from it as it was commodified and as it was integrated into, um, you know, the culture of nonprofits and NGOs and, and governmental institutions. Um, and basically it was neutered, you know, of all of its radical elements. Um, and what we're left with today is, is just a shell of maybe what, what it once was and what it could have been. And, and I think we think that, you know, it's because movements like the the Black Panthers, you know, were destroyed by the COINTELPRO along with their ideology hidden by the corporate media, by the textbook committees, et cetera, which is why we still have this really fragmented and splintered left that doesn't have this sort of core critique of capitalism that was central to those earlier radical movements. Yeah, and I, I see this kind of, paralleling the course of the Democratic Party. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, in the 80s, you had Jesse Jackson running with what he called the New Rainbow Coalition. Mm -hmm. And he was bringing together a multiracial working class group mm -hmm. that supported his presidency. And, you know, he supported single payer health care and these, you know, so-called radical things that would actually help the majority of the country. Mm-hmm. And then his campaign was, you know, didn't make it past the primaries and he was forced to do essentially the same thing that Bernie did. Mm -hmm. And what we got out of it was the first Bush. Right. And that reminds me of the history of, of McGovern that you were just talking mm -hmm. about, too. Will you stay? Yeah. There? So, you know, McGovern was even earlier, 1972, and he actually won the Democratic primary as a populist mm -hmm. running, you know, he wasn't socialist by any means, but he ran on working class issues, very popular with the students and he was able to win. And then the democratic party completely abandoned him when it came to the actual run. And so he actually won the primaries. Yes. He was the democratic candidate was, in 1972. Yep. And then the, the establishment, basically refused to back him, right? 
yeah, they turned their back on him. Um, the AFL-CIO, I believe, did not endorse him, which is like the only time they've not endorsed a Democratic candidate. Wow. Even though he would have been better for the working class than, you know, say like Joe Biden. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Biden, for example. For example, just taking just a randomly. Recent, recent random example. <laughs> Right. And, you know, and then we saw it again with the Bernie Sanders campaign. You have an actual an actual socialist, but not running on a socialist platform, running on just a progressive platform, you know, but because his platform included uh, something that looked like raising taxes on the wealthy and redistribution of wealth, even on the smallest scale, he had to be absolutely blacklisted and destroyed by the corporate media, by the Democratic Party. We saw that happen in 2016 and 2020. Yes, and Bernie had a rainbow coalition as well. Absolutely. You know, we saw this in Nevada. You know, he destroyed the caucus in Nevada. He mm -hmm. had more than the rest of the candidates put together. He had like 52, 53% of the vote. Right. And that was because of his huge base of Latino support in Nevada. But of course, yeah. the whole time that he had that very diverse base of people of color, you know, the media was pushing this Bernie bro narrative, this white Bernie bro narrative to pretend that he didn't have any diverse support. And I, I admit I'm a white Bernie bro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a white Bernie bro. <laughs> the media was definitely talking about me. But yeah, it's just the media narrative compared to what the reality of it was, you know, the people who were supporting Bernie, you look at Brianna Joy Gray, who was working for the campaign as his press secretary. Nina Turner was a co-chair of his national campaign. Mm -hmm. He had so much Killer support. Mike, Spike Lee. I mean, there were tons of people of color that were supporting Bernie, but the media, the corporate media maintained this narrative that it was just these white Bernie bros that were supporting him because they didn't, they didn't want people to rally and have, find solidarity around this working class base that really was inclusive of everybody. Yeah, and it's just a shame because look at where we're at now. Yeah, that, that'll be for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> but we could conclude this with another quote from William Robinson, um, which he talks about at the end of his um, article in the LA Progressive. And he says, the mass struggles of the 1960s and 70s opened up space for representatives from oppressed groups and others who had earlier identified with the radical agenda of those mass struggles to join ranks of the professional strata and of the elite. In academia, it opened up space for a new intellectual petty bourgeoisie whose class aspirations became expressed in postmodern narratives and identitarian politics and most notably in a visceral rejection of the radical critique of capitalism and a socialist vision. These narratives shaped the consciousness and understanding of a whole generation of young people, alienating them from embracing a desperately needed critique of capitalism at the moment of its globalization. As fissures and splits in the ruling bloc become more acute, they open up opportunities for counter-hegemony from below whose development will require a radical critique of capitalist exploitation that links race to class. The significance of millions of people rising up against racism around the world cannot be overstated. 
popular forces cannot squander this moment of acute capitalist crisis. We're at a crucible. Right. So, Bill, I think Bill Robinson's right to point to the critical moment that is now. And when we have these anti-racist movements that are um, emerging all over the world and global solidarity in, in that struggle as well, uh, we need something to anchor these movements to a radical critique which has really been largely missing because the socialist left has been so destroyed for decades and decades, at least in the United States. I mean, that's what we had with the Black Panther Party was this radical critique of capitalist exploitation. And I think it's really important that everyone, you know, look into the Black Panther Party, read Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and Fred Hampton, and really understand what they were trying to teach us. Exactly, because that buried history is exactly what we need today in our current movements. And we'll put some links on the description to some articles that you can check out um, if you want to read more about them. Crawdads and Taters is a self-produced and directed production by Aaron McCarley and Burian Sundahl. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.